As we prepare to open the Lord's word together, if you would join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on your goodness, we declare that you are indeed good to the uttermost. And you have blessed us richly in ways that we can't even fully express. And so God, we ask now that those truths would be ringing in our ears and our hearts and would give our minds attention to focus on the truth of scripture today. That by the power of your spirit, you would use your word, illuminate it to us that we might understand it accurately and then by your spirit, apply it to us that we might walk in it. We ask it in the precious name of our good Jesus. Amen. Well, if you would, turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 7 as we continue this wonderful journey through this letter, Hebrews 7. In 1945, a group of 300 Jewish children who had survived the horrors of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany were brought to a place called Lake Windermere in England to be rehabilitated. The goal was to help them recover from the abuse and the neglect that they had experienced in the Nazi concentration camps and eventually to rejoin society. And of course that process was no small job and the adults given the responsibility of caring for these children and helping them to recover faced a daunting task. These kids were malnourished, grieving the loss of loved ones. Many of them saw their loved ones pass away And they had long ago stopped trusting adults. A movie about this sad but interesting point in history was recently released. And one particular scene from that movie caught my attention and came to mind as I studied to prepare for our time together this morning. It was on the first night that those children entered into that place at Lake Windermere that they were gathered into a large room, a mess hall of sorts, where they would eat their first meal after arriving They were all seated at their tables, and once seated, they placed in front of them baskets of warm, fresh bread. The place was filled with the aroma of the bread. The bread, of course, was not the meal. It was simply the appetizer coming before the meal, but the children had just come from concentration camps. And so they were cruelly starved within an inch of death, and here they are smelling the aroma of this fresh bread, some of them for the first time in their lives. As the bread was placed on the tables, the children began to catch eyes with one another, looking at the bread, and then back at their friends across the table. Whispers started to spread, and the children were getting anxious. And so a rabbi was called to say a blessing for the food, and as he finished that blessing, about halfway through the word, amen, all of the children jumped up in unison and began to grab as much bread as they could grab and to run out of the room to take the bread back to their rooms to hide it for later. The adults in charge were initially shocked and trying to figure out what was going on, but once it dawned on them what was happening, the man who was in charge, a kind man, raised his voice and yelled something to those serving the tables and said, bring out more bread Show them it will never run out. You know, many people live that way when it comes to the assurance of salvation. They, they do well trusting God's grace for a time, but when they're struck by the tragedies of life or the shame that comes with the continued battle with sin, they wonder if God's grace will truly outlast their sin and their trouble. But the author of Hebrews this morning helps us by showing us 
that the eternal priestly ministry of Christ is the ultimate assurance of our salvation, and it assures us that the grace of God exists in an overwhelming, abundant supply that will never run out. The theme of the letter to the Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. Of course, we're now closing out our study of the superiority of Christ as the great high priest. He's superior to, to Aaron, to the priesthood that came through the line of Abraham, the Levitical priesthood. We're finishing chapter 7 this week and next. We've seen observations about this strange character, Melchizedek, that we've seen his historical significance and his spiritual significance. We've been called to, to reflect or to observe the greatness of this man, Melchizedek, in verse 4. We saw that the Levites received tithes based on the law, but Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham because of his superior status, which pointed ultimately to the superior status of Christ himself. Then last week, we observed why it was necessary for another priest to be put in place instead of the Levitical priesthood. What was the point? What was the inadequacy in the Levitical priesthood that had to be resolved by Christ. The argument there in verse 11 is that Christ's priesthood reveals the law's inadequacy, and that is because, as we saw, what is needed for salvation is no less than perfection. We need sinless moral perfection if we're ever to enter into heaven, and yet we're inadequate. We don't have that perfection. And so we are then needing another priest, another who can come and truly intercede for us with perfection that we might have his perfection rather than our own futile attempts. We saw that the law must be removed when Christ comes. And finally, the summation in verses 18 and 19, Christ's priesthood provides the sinner perfection. In Christ, we have the perfection that we need so that we can be clothed in his righteousness and not our own. But this morning and next Sunday, we come to the grand finale of this argument about the superiority of Christ. Perhaps you've wondered why the author was inspired by the Spirit to spend such time on this one truth. Well, this morning and next, all of that's going to come together. But today, we're going to be looking specifically at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 to 25. Let's read our passage together. Hebrews 7 verses 20 to 25. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We're continuing along in this same theme that the eternal assurance of our faith rests on the eternal priesthood of Christ. And we'll see this theme begin to even become more clear in our verses this morning. 
He closes out this argument in chapter 7 of the, the superior priesthood of Christ by giving us three final traits that show us the undeniable superior quality of this priesthood. Today, we'll look at the first two of those traits, and then next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at the third. But here's trait number one. Christ's priesthood is established by divine oath. It's established by divine oath. This is verses 20 to 22. If you look back at verse 20, it begins, And inasmuch as it was not without an oath. Now this might appear on the surface to be a a major shift in thought from what we studied last week, but actually it's right in line with where we were. It's still one flow of thought. And what he's doing is taking us back to chapter 6. Now I know it's been some time since we were in chapter 6, but you may remember if you were here with us that in chapter 6 he began to talk about the promise made to Abraham and how we are to imitate the faith of Abraham. And just as Abraham believed the promise of God, we should believe the promises of God that he has made to us. Specifically, he said there in chapter 6, that God made an oath to us who are the heirs of the promise made to Abraham. This is Hebrews 6, verses 16 to 18. For men swear by one greater than themselves... And with them an oath is given as confirmation as an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Now, you may remember that passage there. We talked about the significance of the fact that God would ever take an oath. If you think about it, there's absolutely no reason for God to make an oath about anything. Because by nature, God cannot lie. So, his words are in and of themselves trustworthy and eternally reliable. And they have no need for extra confirmation. They have no need for an added oath. And yet, at certain times, we know verifiably in Scripture, God has indeed made promises, and he's made oaths. Specifically, he's made one to us here. And we talked about the fact that when God makes an oath, he's essentially doubling down on his own character. He's doubling down on his own nature. That's why the author says in in Hebrews 6 there that by two unchangeable things, we can trust this. What are those two unchangeable things? Remember, the first is the statement itself, this promise. The second unchangeable thing is the oath. So it's a statement with an oath. And so he doubles down on his own nature. The fact that he cannot lie is re-emphasized by the oath. So the point then, basically, is we would be fools not to believe it. If God would add an oath to a statement, we better take him at his word. And here in context... He's thinking about this this oath that was taken in relation to the promise of our key verse that we've been looking at this entire time from Psalm 110 verse 4. He's going to quote it in a minute, so we'll read it then. But he still has that same oath in mind. You are a priest forever. But now he's going to make a comparison between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Christ. Back to verse 20. He says in verse 21, you'll see the the brackets there. This is sort of a, a parenthetical statement. 
For they indeed became priests without an oath, that is the Levitical priests. But he, Christ, with an oath, through the one who said to him. So the Levitical priests, remember they were priests. It was commanded in the law. God said that they were to be priests, but he never ever swore an oath saying that their priesthood would continue. But of course with Christ, that's a very different story. And now he quotes our key verse. This is Psalm 110, verse 4. We've seen it. You probably hopefully have it written on the back of your eyelids by now. But this is sadly the last time that we'll see this verse here in Hebrews written for us. But let's read it again. This is at the end of verse 21. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The emphasis here this time when we read this verse is on the beginning. The Lord has sworn. He's making the the, the case again that the Lord swore an oath when he gave this to us. God the Father swore the oath. But notice the other two aspects that he gives us here in this quote. He says, the Lord has sworn, and first of all, will not change his mind. Now, that's somewhat redundant, again, because we know by by his own character that God cannot change his mind. We see this all over the place in Scripture. Think of Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? What about 1 Samuel 15, 29? Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So this addition of the description, he's sworn and will not change his mind, it's, it's not there but for God's benefit, it's there for our benefit. He's added this, this oath for the benefit of us. This is what was explained to us back in Hebrews chapter 6. Human beings add oaths uh, or they swear in order to convince the other person that they're really telling the truth this time. God obviously doesn't need to do that, but he does it for our benefit. He he uses a tactic that's common among men, but but in attaching it to his perfect character, it, it, it exponentially increases the value of what he's just said. And remember, the the actual promise, the oath, is that you are a priest forever, speaking of Christ. So the divine oath that God the Father made is that his son, the Messiah, would come and he would serve as a great high priest and he would do that every day, night and day, forever. Something completely foreign to the installment of the Levitical priesthood. And we can have assurance that this will go on forever and forever because of this God, divine, God-ordained divine oath that's added to the promise. But that's that's not new. We saw that again back in chapter 6. But here he's, he's bringing that to our attention again to make another point. And this is really what he's getting at. Notice what he adds in verse 22. This is why he's brought this oath up again. So much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now this is the first mention of this idea of Jesus introducing a new covenant in the book of Hebrews. But what he's doing is introducing to us the new theme that he's about to turn to. And we'll study this idea of covenant uh, 
as long as we've studied this idea of Christ's priesthood connect, connected to the priesthood of Melchizedek. But it's, this is the new topic that's coming. And remember, he's done this throughout Hebrews. At the end of one topic, he'll briefly mention what's coming next and then close out his argument before moving to it. That's what he does here. He's bridging the gap into what we will look at together. And so I'm going to save the discussion of Christ introducing a new covenant for the weeks ahead because trust me, you'll, you, you, you'll learn all you want to know about that when we get to it. We'll talk about it in depth. So hold on to that for just a moment and let's look at the primary point that the author's making here. What he's doing is tying this into what we studied last week. Remember, last week we studied the fact that the Levitical priesthood um, was connected to the law so if you remove the priesthood, you also remove the law. So in bringing Christ then, a new priest, the idea is that a new covenant comes with him. The old one is gone, the new one has come in Christ. So much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. That means, tying this together, that when the father swore an oath promising that the Messiah would serve as a priest forever, he was also indicating that with Christ a new covenant would come and be made with God's people. But the implications of this go even further because notice one particular word that he says about Jesus here. He says, Jesus has become the guarantee. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Another translation for that word guarantee is the word surety. He's become surety for a better covenant. That is, because Christ is the great high priest who will reign forever, the security of the new covenant that God is making with his people rests on Christ. And notice the intentionality of the mention of his proper name Jesus here. I don't know if you caught it, but this is the first time he said the name Jesus in some time. It's the first time he's brought Jesus' proper name into this whole discussion of the priesthood of Christ. We've been talking about Melchizedek, right? And I, we were careful to say, hey, we're, we're mentioning the word Melchizedek, but we're talking about Christ. But here, he removes the veil completely and says, I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant, and by saving his name for the end like this, it's like building a crescendo for emphasis. We, we've known he's been talking about Jesus this whole time, but now here at the end, he gives us the, the punch of the argument. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Reveals for us that this new covenant can be relied upon, it's secure because Jesus stands as its guarantee or guarantor. This is imagery of a legal contract, a legal contract in which you're required to put up collateral to stand behind the promise you've made legally, to say that you will carry this out. Jesus has become that collateral. Richard Phillips says it this way, the word was used in ancient legal documents for one who stands security. The guarantor offered his goods or even himself as security to ensure what was promised. This helps us grasp the writer's point, namely that as long as Jesus lives, the covenant of our salvation is secured by him. Now we have to get our minds around the significance of what the Holy Spirit has just said to us through 
the pen of the author of Hebrews. When the Father made the promise, secured by his own divine oath, that his Son would serve as our eternal high priest, he also indicated that his Son would offer himself as collateral that guaranteed that salvation and that new covenant. That covenant includes salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Christ accomplished it in his life, death, and resurrection, and he stands as the guarantor of that as he continues to minister on our behalf as our great high priest. The significance of that then is that the assurance of our faith rests on the eternal priesthood of Christ. He is the guarantor. He is the foundation. It begins and ends with Christ. And so this is as sure and certain as the character of God himself. God stamps his own name on this promise that it will endure forever with this divine oath that Christ's priesthood is superior because he is the guarantee of a new covenant and this has been confirmed by divine oath. Now, we'll save all the details, the wonderful details of that new covenant and what that means for the chapters to come. But for now, I want us to look at the second trait here of the priesthood of Christ. And it's this trait that will focus our attention for the bulk of our time. Trait number two, Christ's priesthood accomplished an eternal salvation. Christ's priesthood accomplished an eternal salvation. This is verses 23 to 25. Again, this second trait is going to be introduced by this comparison. We're still comparing the Levitical priesthood to the superior priesthood of Christ. And he's going to highlight again one of the inadequacies of the Levitical priesthood. This is verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Now, this is a fact that we've already studied, so I won't belabor this point, but essentially he's reminding us that because these former priests were mere mortal men, um, they had to serve in large numbers because they were constantly dying and someone had to come in and take their place. It was therefore always limited and required a large number, but not so with Christ. Look back at the passage, verse 24, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. He holds it permanently. permanently. Now, you'll hopefully remember that last week we saw that, that Jesus met this miraculous requirement for the one who would come and fulfill this priestly role in the line of Melchizedek. That miraculous requirement was the fact that he had an indestructible life. Or in other words, this priest that would come, you would know that he's here when you see one that has an eternal life. And of course, Jesus proved that in his resurrection and his ascension. He's even now at the right hand of the Father. And so now the author ties back into that truth that unlike the Levitical priest who died and had to exist in these massive numbers and succession, Jesus has no need for a successor because he will never leave office. He will always serve as the great high priest. And as long as he exists, his office will exist. Therefore, his ministry will exist forever and ever. No longer do we need a system of multiple high priests who pass down their family line. 
We have now the ultimate, the superior high priest who represents us and he will represent us perfectly forever. But again, that's not new news. We've said that now many times. And so, again, the author brings up an old point to now give a new application, to help us understand the substance of that. What's the real meaning of that? Why should that matter to us? And so he gives that to us clearly now with the word therefore. And verse 25 is where we're going to land this morning and and, and, and sit and, and soak in these truths. Verse 25, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. By adding the word therefore, it's as if he's saying, or in other words, or what I'm saying, the significance of this is because he exists forever and his office continues forever, then what I'm intending you to understand, he says, is that he is able also to save forever. That's the big news. And this is an absolutely fantastic statement. He is able also to save forever. The supremacy of the priesthood of Christ comes down to this one crucial truth. The salvation that the law could not provide, Christ has provided in perfection. It's important to understand that word forever there, he's able to save forever, could also be translated as completely or even to the uttermost. If you have the ESV, it says he's able to save to the uttermost. And and I believe that really captures the spirit of what's meant here. The word can mean forever. It certainly implies forever. But it means to the nth degree. He's able to save completely to the uttermost. Unlike the Levitical priesthood that was only adding a a covering for sin, an external uh, ceremonial cleansing for sin that needed to happen over and over again, what Christ has offered to us is a real salvation, a salvation that gets to the root of our sin, a salvation that saves us to the nth degree, to the uttermost. It is a complete salvation. There's no need to add to it, and nothing can ever be taken away from it. This is a description of absolute perfection in the salvation of Christ. It is a real atonement, an eternal atonement by a perfect Savior. Because he exists forever and holds his office forever, it will never be revisited, it will never be reconsidered, and it is incapable of being undone. What the Levitical priest could never do, Christ has done. He's paid for sins in the past. He's paid for present sins. He's paid for future sins. And he's done it once for all. This is what it means to provide salvation to the uttermost, to the nth degree. He's paid for every rebellious thought, every rebellious word, and every rebellious actions. Those sins that you're very aware you have committed, he paid for those, and sins that you have no idea you committed, he paid for those. He paid for it all. He's able to save completely and to the uttermost because he is the one who lives forever and his atonement is perfection. If you've wondered why the author's camped out so long to make sure that we get it when it comes to this issue of the priesthood of Christ, it's because your salvation depends on understanding who Christ is. 
and what he's done for you. It is bigger than our minds can comprehend. We don't have enough Sundays to talk about this, to fully grasp the meaning that Christ has saved to the uttermost. But there's something else here. Added almost, you know, as an addendum. If we're not careful, we could just blow right past it. But he gives us some information here that would indicate that this is not universal. Not everyone will experience this salvation to the uttermost. And it's in this one simple phrase, verse 25, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Those who draw near to God through him. Who is it that will receive this perfect, eternal salvation. It's those who draw near to God through Christ and Christ alone. As I mentioned last week, this is the great conundrum of mankind. There is this call for perfection to enter into the presence of God. We woefully fail to meet the standard of that perfection. And so we need reconciliation with God. We desire to be made right with God, and yet we're incapable of creating that opportunity in our own merit. So what does this mean, that only those who draw near to God through Christ will receive this salvation? It means that we must repent and believe the gospel. That's what it means. It means there is no other way. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. It means that we have to first understand our sin and admit that we are sinners and that we're incapable of drawing near to God on our own, that we don't have the righteousness that it takes to draw near to God. We have to recognize that our sin separates us from God and we deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. And then we have to turn our eyes to Christ and recognize that what we failed to do, Christ did in perfection, that God the Father provided for us in his Son the perfect life we failed to live and that Christ offered that life on the cross as a sacrifice to pay for our sins and then rose again from the, from the dead proving that God had accepted his sacrifice. The Bible says if you will turn from your sin, if you'll repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, not in what you can do, but in what he has done, then and only then will you be saved. A salvation by grace that's offered to you on what Christ has done, not what you have done. A salvation that comes by faith in him alone. That's why he says only those who draw near to the Father through him will receive this great eternal salvation. Ask yourself this morning, if you were to stand at heaven's gate, just picture yourself there, and God was to ask you, why should I allow you into my heaven? How would you answer? How would you answer that question? There's only one response that's the appropriate response, and it's the response of Christ and Christ alone. The only reason that God should allow us into his heaven is not because of us and what we have done. It is because of the grace of God offered to us in his son and what his son has accomplished for us. And so the answer is, I plead Christ. I plead Christ and Christ alone. Because only by his life, death, and resurrection can I hope to approach the throne of God. But understand that this here in the passage, in context, this is here for our encouragement. 
This is here for us to understand that for those who do draw near, it's absolute. Those who draw near through Christ will receive this salvation, and it will be a salvation that's applied to them in perfection that can never lapse or be taken away. And now we understand why that is. And it comes to us in this last glorious statement in verse 25. Here's why. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christian, do you understand the magnitude of that statement? Just stop and think about those words. Jesus Christ is your eternal high priest, which means his ministry on your behalf will continue every moment of every day, not just in your temporal life, but forever. Because he always lives, he always ministers, because he goes on forever, his ministry goes on forever. And notice how that ministry is described. What's the word used here to describe the way that Christ ministers for us? He intercedes for us. This is intercession. The Son lives forever and therefore he eternally intercedes on our behalf before the Father. Now this is such good news. It's the best news. It's, it's so high and lofty that I, I can't really grasp it myself or, or dare to, to explain it to you. But we're going to do our best here to understand what it means that the Son intercedes for us. First of all, it means that as he is there at the right hand of the Father, we ought not to think of him sitting there idle. As if he's just sitting idly by, just waiting until the day in which he returns. No, he's busy. He has a, a role. He has a job that he is fulfilling as he's there at the right hand of the Father. Remember, we've said often throughout this study that the, the ministry of the priest was primarily a ministry of representation, right? The priest would go in before God on behalf of the people. He represented the people before God. Well, Christ is there now as our eternal representative. He's representing us in the very presence of God. Remember, not in an earthly temple made with hands, but behind the veil of heaven itself, in the very holy of holies, the real holy place, the very presence of the Father. And he ministers now as our representative at the Father's right hand, and that ministry includes this pivotal role of intercession. He intercedes for us. Obviously, the word to intercede means to make a request to someone on someone else's behalf. The actual word, the Greek word, is defined to make an earnest request through contact with the person approached. So there's this idea of, of real physical contact. To intercede, you have to be in the presence of that person. And so Christ is there face-to-face -face in the literal ear, if you will, of God the Father making this request on our behalf. And don't miss the connection here between this eternality of Christ and the effectiveness of this ministry, because he's able to save to the uttermost, he's able to do that because he's there to the uttermost. He's there forever, eternally, at the Father's right hand. So think of it this way. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was a singular event in history. It happened one time, never to be repeated. It doesn't need to be repeated. But we ought not to think that everything was 
was finished at that time in the sense that Christ just took a vacation. It was finished in the sense that our sins were fully paid for. But Christ then went to work ministering on our behalf on the basis of that sacrifice. Because it was a sufficient sacrifice, it then ushered in this ministry of Christ whereby he intercedes for us. The, the effects, the realities that are ours because of that one-time event, he continually ministers out before the Father on our behalf in this work of intercession. As you think about that, think about this. What greater assurance can we have that our salvation is secure and therefore we will persevere in the faith to the end of our lives than this intercessory ministry of Christ. What greater assurance exists than the fact that our Savior intercedes on our behalf forever? Richard Phillips, in his helpful commentary, points out two, two thoughts that we ought to have as we think through this issue of Christ's ministry of intercession so that we don't go off the track. First of all, he, he mentions that Christ's intercessory ministry reminds us that we need no other. We need no other person to intercede for us. Therefore, the idea of calling on Mary or, or, or some dead saint to intercede for us is foolishness. We have an intercessor, and we need no other. But secondly, there's another misconception here as we think about this ministry of intercession, we have to be careful to guard against. And that is we, we have to be careful not to misinterpret this need for Christ to intercede continually, to think that it means that the Father is in reality still angry and disgusted with us and that he has a frowning face towards us and that Christ has to constantly appease him against us because while he's offered salvation, he's really just angry with us and he's done it begrudgingly. That's not what this means at all. That's not the point. You say, how do you know that? Well, many reasons, but think about this. Who made the oath that promised that Jesus would serve as our great high priest forever? The Father. The Father made the oath. This was the will of the Father, that the Son would come and accomplish this work and then serve as our intercessor forever. The Son serves in this role in accordance with the eternal will of the Father. After all, don't forget the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God, that is God the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all equally love God's people. It pleased the Father for the Son to redeem us through his sacrifice and then to minister on our behalf in this ministry of intercession. The Father invites the intercession of the Son and receives it with joy. But you might ask, what does this intercessory ministry of Christ look like? What's he doing? What, what does it consist of? Well, thankfully, Christ demonstrated his commitment to intercede for us during his earthly ministry. It's not really a mystery what this looks like. There are a lot of passages we could turn to 
Uh, and I, I had several in my notes originally, but then decided let's just focus on sort of the crown jewel. There is one passage in the New Testament that really highlights this ministry of intercession, where we get a, a living picture of Christ interceding on our behalf. So we're going to read a passage that's longer than what we would normally read in the middle of a message, but it's because it's crucial for us to see the reality of this ministry on our behalf. In just a moment, you can go ahead and turn there, but we're going to be in John 17. We're going to read what's called the the high priestly prayer. I mean, even in the title of the prayer, it connects to this ministry. This is Christ exhibiting this, this heart of a priest, of an intercessor, during his earthly ministry. Let me just set up the scene for you for a moment if you're not familiar with John 17. But this is Jesus on the night of his arrest. He's just about to be arrested. He'll be crucified the following day. He knows the end is coming. He's just left the upper room. So you remember the upper room discourse and that beautiful picture there in John 14 and, and, and onward. And now he leaves the upper room and he's actually traveling from the upper room to the Mount of Olives where he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Along the way, he stops and prays this prayer in the hearing of his disciples and he reveals his heart for them and for us. Let's read it together. John 17 verses 1 to 26. Try to take yourself there. Put yourself in the scene that that night as Jesus prays these words. Think of of how awestruck the apostles must have been, how awestruck we would be to hear Jesus pray for us. Because that's what's happening here. John 17. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I gave to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Verse 9, he turns now, begins to pray for them. I ask on their behalf... I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. 
Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, this is where we enter the picture. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which I've, you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect, perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you've given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I've made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, this is a longer passage, as I said, but I I want you to see that in this beautiful prayer, we see the heart of Christ for his people, for us. And we see that he intercedes for them by praying for very specific things. In case you didn't catch him, let me pull out for you some of the things that he prayed specifically for us. Number one, in verses 11 and 12, he prayed for our preservation in the faith. He said, keep them in your name, he prayed. In verse 15, he prayed for our protection from the evil one. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. In verses 16 and 19, he prays for our sanctification in the truth. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In verses 20 to 23, he prays for our unity with God and our unity with one another. And then in verse 24, he prays for our union with Christ in heaven. He prays that we will be with him where he is. Now, Christian, this is a foretaste of what Christ would go on to pray in the ear of the Father for us forever. These are still the things that Christ intercedes on our behalf in praying to the Father. Having secured our salvation by his life, death, and resurrection, he now intercedes on our behalf to apply that salvation to us in real time. He prays that we will persevere in our faith in the midst of the difficulties of life. He prays that God will protect us from sin and from the temptations of the devil. He prays that God will continue to progressively make us holy and to conform us to the image of Christ as the Holy Spirit works in us according to the word. He prays that we will dwell in unity together as a body and that we will be in unity with the Father through him. And he prays that at the right time and no sooner and no later that God will bring us to heaven to be with him forever where he is. So what greater assurance could we ever hope for? If we have the Son of God interceding, praying these kinds of things for us day in and day out without ceasing, then what greater need of assurance do we have than this? The Son of God pleads his blood for you, Christian, in the very presence of the Father. And he does it because it pleased the Father to place him there in that role. 
Practically what that means for us is that there is no trial and no temptation in this life that can truly threaten our assurance of salvation through Jesus Christ. If you have genuinely repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, then he will hold you fast. He will see to it that you persevere in that faith, not in perfection, but in direction to the end of your life at which time he will bring you to be with himself. And you can have assurance of that fact because he will never stop praying for you. Never. This is a call for us to hold on. It's a picture like this. You remember when you learned to swim. I learned to swim. I took swimming lessons, but I also learned to swim by the help of my dad. And when I was afraid of the water, as we all are when we're little, and we don't want to put our face in the water, my dad would hold me by my, my stomach in the, in the water, and, and he would tell me, calm down. And I'm, I'm thrashing and flailing. Some of you have been a part of this before. And he would tell me to calm down. And as I calmed down, he would say, now, I've got you. Now, kick. I've got you. Kick your legs. Kick, kick, kick. And he would hold me. And because I knew he had a hold of me and he wouldn't let go, I began to kick, began to swim and move forward. It's the same way in the Christian life. We, you know, the Bible calls us to persevere, but the Bible also says that we will be preserved. And we will persevere in the faith because Christ will never stop preserving us in the faith. We're kicking our legs. We're making progress through the pool but the sovereign hand of God holds us and he will never let us go. And so this, this idea of Christ interceding for us is not a call for us to be lazy and inactive and just sit back and say, well, it's all gonna happen and so I can just be a couch potato, spiritually speaking. No, it's he's got a hold of you, so get busy serving him and living for him and walking in obedience, not because it's what's holding you up, but because you're already being held up. You see the difference? The difference in kicking as hard as you can to swim for the Lord when you know it's by his power and not by yours and that it's not earning anything for you, but it's out of what he has already done. It's a very different call to obedience. We, pre we persevere because we are being preserved. So when the storms and trials of life threaten to overwhelm you and to break you, Christian, hold on. Your faith may be weak, but Christ has prayed for you, and God will not let you go. You remember when, when Peter was about to go through his trial of testing, and, and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Essentially, he's asked to put you to the test, Peter. But then what does Jesus say? But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you, Peter. I, that simple phrase, to the thought of the tenderness of Jesus, I have prayed for you. God will restore you. He will hold you. Let this truth strengthen you to stand and to fight the good fight of faith, Christian. Rest not in your own strength. Rest in the truth that Christ offers you his strength. Rest in the truth of what he told Paul, that yes, there's a thorn in your flesh, but I'm not gonna take it away and you're gonna be okay because my grace is sufficient for you. When you're tempted to believe the lie that your temptation towards sin is just too great and you have no option but to yield to it, picture Christ interceding for you, praying for you to hold fast, praying, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that, that God would provide a way out for you, a way of escape, and he will be faithful to do that. 
Don't you see that this passage reveals the true significance of the superiority of the priesthood of Christ? Because it means that your salvation is secure and it means that he will continue to persevere and interceding for you, which means God will never let you go. And so it's a call this morning as we close to really focus on two things. Number one, I would call us all to rest in the Father's oath. Rest in the Father's oath. When you're pressed by the trials of life and worry that you may be crushed, remember the Father's oath that God himself swore to put Christ in this role as our high priest and intercessor and to leave him there forever. That means also that in promising this, he would bring the guarantee of the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone and apply that to you, Christian. And that means that he has committed himself to hold you fast. As Jesus says, no one will be able to take you from his hand if you are his. So when you're tempted to think that you won't make it through the storms and trials of life, turn your mind to the Father's oath that he has installed Christ in this role. But finally, this passage also calls us, number two, to rest in the Son's intercession. Rest in the Son's intercession. As we've already mentioned, if the Son is committed to eternally intercede on your behalf, then what in the world could ever truly shake your faith? When your heart is broken, when you cannot see the Father's hand in your circumstance, when you don't understand why God has allowed this trial to persist in your life, and as you then fall on your knees and call out to God in prayer, remember someone else is praying too. Christ prays for you and with you. And let that intercessory work of the Son encourage you that you don't have to understand why in this life. You just have to trust the heart and the character of God. You know, I was thinking about this in conjunction with our prayer life, and it dawned on me that often, perhaps mostly, we pray out of ignorance. You ever thought about that? We're we're ignorant of what God's doing. We're ignorant of why he's doing it. But you know, Christ never prays that way. Christ prays with perfect knowledge, not only of what you're going through, but of what God is doing through it. He knows it all. He knows the pain you're feeling, and he knows the glory that God intends to produce through that trial. And so when you're tempted to fear and be anxious and to worry and to doubt, turn your mind to your high priest who prays for you in perfection with full knowledge And understand that God will not leave you in that trial one moment longer than is perfectly appropriate. And even if your trial ends in death, the Father will be faithful to answer the Son's prayer. Bring them, Father, to be with me where I am. This is a truth that connects with every day for the rest of eternity for all of our lives. That we have this wonderful, precious Savior who not only died for us and lived for us, but lives now forevermore to intercede for us. I pray that's an encouragement to you. It's an encouragement to me. It really provides the great foundation for us then to turn our minds to communion 
to celebrate in the way that God gave us the gift of his son. I'm going to ask Randy to come and to begin to prepare to play. But as he does, I just want to remind us as we do each time that we're called to prepare our hearts for the taking of the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 26 to 29, this is what Paul says. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. This is a call for us to, again, take of the table in a worthy manner, which means two things essentially. One, it means that you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you turn from your sins and put your faith in him for salvation. Secondly, it means if you are a believer in Christ this morning, that you're not holding on to hard-hearted rebellion. Sin that is known in your life, you know it's there, but you're stubbornly holding on and refusing to repent of that sin. The Bible says to take of communion while in that state is to take of it in an unworthy manner, to make a mockery of the fact that Christ died to save us from sin's penalty and from sin's power in our daily lives. So what I want to do is give us some time now to to pray individually, to prepare our hearts, confess sin, repent of sin, give thanks to God for Christ's sacrifice, and then we'll take of communion together.